Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. But consider this scenario. It's December 1944, World War II. You are in the European theater and you are assigned as a combat medic. What's your job? Combat medic. You're in a Jeep and you're going to your new assignment and your assignment's at a forward operating position next to the German border. As you come over the hill, you see your encampment that you're going to. And just as you do, you look up into the sky and you see two German FW, the Falkworth 190s, and they're diving at the, they're diving at the base. They release two bombs. You hit the brakes, you cover your eyes, you feel the heat, you feel the percussion, and when the dust settles, you hit the gas, and you get to the camp, and you take note of what's going on in the scene. You've got people dead, you've got people alive, and you've got people in every state in between. What is your job? Combat medic. So after the initial shock goes away, what do you do? Your combat medic training kicks in, and what is the first thing you need to do? Come on, it's life and death here. What's the first thing? Combat medic. Assess. There's a word for that. What, is, what do they call that? Triage. Triage. So what you're going to do is you're going to find any able-bodied person you can. Those that are dead, we're not worried about them. This little guy whose pinky finger is bleeding, we're not really worried about him, are we? But we got a guy over here who's missing a leg and needs a tourniquet. We got over here with a hole in his chest. He needs to get packed in. So the first thing you need to do is when you come into a situation, you need to evaluate the situation. You look, you listen, and then you're going to take appropriate action. Again, in a situation like this, it's life and death. Let me give you a second situation. How many of you uh, have ever seen an equation like the, like the one up here? Sitting in high school math class, who, how many, how many, any math guys in here? They can solve this? What is it? What's the answer? 13? 11? I heard 13, I heard 11. Any others? 11? Okay, so if we're going to attack this problem, how do we solve this problem? PEMDAS or GEMS, right? What is that called? Order of operations. PEMDAS, we're going to do parentheses first, exponents next, M, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, right? Or GEMS, right? We do groupings, exponents, multiplication, division, Subtraction addition, right? Y'all remember that. If you fail to use proper order of operations, what's going to happen? You are absolutely going to get the wrong answer. Okay? My name's Joseph Robinson. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a homeschool dad. I got five kids. Ages, well, my daughter just turned 21. So I, I got them from 21 to 13. That's my primary job. But I'm also an apologist. I take very seriously the defense of the gospel. It's, it's, it's amazing time. And it's absolutely fun. And one of the things that um, Pastor Brian is, is walking you guys through is the end of what we call the order of operations, the apologetics order of operation. We're talking about the reliability of the New Testament. You see, Many folks look at the New Testament that were Orthodox Jews like we would look at the Book of Mormon. How many of you are down with the Book of Mormon? Nope. Okay. All right. <laughs> Define down. So suddenly we had the Old Testament scriptures. The Christians come along, putting their faith and trust in this guy, Jesus Christ. They take the letters, they take the eyewitness accounts, they bundle them together, and they get this new 
Testament. And Orthodox Jews are looking at this like a dog at a new dish. Now, when we look at the Book of Mormon, we do the same thing, don't we? Yeah, we're looking at the Scriptures, and we're looking at, because the Book of Mormon could be a book from God. But then again, it could not be a book from God. How do we determine whether or not it's the real thing? We have to do apologetics. Anyone ever met a Mormon apologist? I, I've, I've never met one because they, they really don't do apologetics. Christianity is unique. It's the only religion where you can actually look at evidence and reasons to support your position. If we're looking at order of operations, the first thing we need to establish when we're talking to someone about God is we need to figure out where they are in this cycle. It's like a man planting a field. You can't just go and throw seeds and expect to harvest. Many times you have to plow. you got to prep the land. Correct? So there's plowing. Then there's planting. Then there's watering and fertilizing. And eventually, hopefully, you get to the place where you harvest. That's the goal, isn't it? Well, the same is true with apologetics. But it starts, it starts with objective truth. If you're speaking with someone who doesn't share your Christian convictions... You have to, the first thing you have to learn is whether or not they're dealing in a world of truth. And if they don't believe in objective truth, then you have to begin to ask the questions that would lead them to understanding that truth does exist. And not only does truth exist, truth can be known. Everything has a nature. I'm a male image bearer of God. There are also female image bearers of God here. Rocks have a nature. Trees have a nature. Certain things are what they are, and they aren't what they aren't. Amen? Objective truth is first. If we can establish objective truth, the next thing we can establish is what? Any guesses? Right and wrong is close, but we can't do right and wrong without something else. Close? Number two, does God exist? You got a couple answers, right? Either you have no God, you've got one God, or you've got multiple gods. We have to solve that question. So in our order of operations, truth is first. The second, does God exist? And we've got lots of arguments for the existence of God. Anybody know any arguments for God? Intelligent design, that's a great one. The teleological arguments. Right? There's the, the Kalam, the cosmological arguments, right? the existence of the universe. We argue from the fact that the universe exists back to an uncaused first cause and a necessary reason for the universe to be here. The moral argument. I heard the moral argument, Matt, but can we have morals without God? That's a great question. That's what many people argue about the, uh, the problem of evil. They're talking about evil, but... You can't have evil without an objective good. So if you're saying something's wrong, by default, you're saying it's not the way they should be. So the question then becomes, what is your standard for good? How do you ground it? So there's lots of good arguments. If God exists, now we got basically three groups of people left, don't we? We've got Christians. We've got those that practice Judaism. We've got those that practice Islam, that all believe in a one God. Okay, then the three of us are going to square off like three Spider-Mans pointing at each other, right? And they're going to figure out which one is it. This is where we are now. The next thing we need to, because if God exists, we know that miracles are possible because miracles come along with God. So here we are, the Christian worldview. So does, in fact, the Bible exist? Is the New Testament historically accurate? The New Testament is our version. It's our book that we use to defend what it is we believe to be true. So let's dive in. Is the New Testament historically accurate? Well, we're going to have to answer a couple questions first. One of them is the New Testament identical the text identical to the originals. D 
Did we get the proper transmission of this data? The second part, are the New Testament manuals, manuscripts actually true? Now, just get your cameras and stuff ready because we're going to blaze through some of this stuff because I want to have some time for Q&A at the end. So here we go. You guys ready? Is it true? We're going to jump in. The first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at the New Testament the way they look at any historical book. The first thing we know is how many manuscripts are there? How many original manuscripts are there? And how early were they written? In other words, the event happened here. How much time between the event happening and us actually having true manuscripts? And number three, are there errors or variations? And if so, can we count for those errors and variations? I want to show you another graph here. That's an amazing graph. These are the total manuscripts available for some of the great writings of antiquity. Plato, Pliny, Herodotus, Caesar. On the graph versus the New Testament copies, they don't even register. They're so small. We have over 5,800 copies, over 2 million pages of texts for our New Testament. We also have another 10,000 copies in Latin, 8,000 in uh, Coptic and, and, and Cynic languages. That's not bad, is it? I, th I think we can satisfy the copies test versus some of these other books of antiquity that we hold to be true. So what we're doing now is we're removing the, 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 the whole Christian, oh yeah, it's, it's true because God says it's true and all that circular reasoning. And we're evaluating the New Testament like we would evaluate any other historical document. Is the New Testament historically accurate? That's pretty good. Let's look at the next one. What happens in terms of time when an event happens and we let too much time pass before we start writing about it, what can enter into that text? We can get errors, right? What else? I'm sorry? Variations, forget, but we can also enter in legend, can't we? We can fluff it up a bit. We can change things a bit because no one is alive that can refute it. No eyewitnesses are alive that can refute it. That's problematic. But let's look at the time frames here. From the earliest surviving copy, look at the book of Homer, Demosthenes, Tychus, Caesar, Herodotus. Look at the amount of time that's passed before these other books that are held as fact by the world. We have 25 copies of the New Testament in the first century it was written. We have another 12 copies in the second century, 64 in the third, and 48 in the fourth century. So we have about 124 copies original documents still in existence today in the first 300 years after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can we check those boxes? So when someone says, hey, the, the Bible is just a... Is, is, some people look at the book... Actually, even Christians look at the Bible like it's some magical book that fell from the sky like manna from heaven, and it landed in our hands, and we all stood in awe. Okay? The Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. But remember, we've already proved order of operations that God exists so miracles are possible. And if miracles are possible, it is a very small thing for God to lay on the hearts of men His inspired Word and give us a New Testament that is full, accurate, correct, and something you can bet your very soul on. There's no other religions that can do this. There's no other sacred text that can be investigated like our sacred texts are investigated. So you can stand proud and know that the word that you follow is solid. Let's look at the next. There's a difference between transmission and translation. 
So I want to make that really clear. Transmission and translation. Transmission is taking something from point A to point B, and it still looks the same. How many of you played telephone before? Okay, so what we're talking about is telephone. We want to make sure that how do we know that the first text that we have, the original text that we have, are the same as the ones that we have now? Very interesting. So let's take a peek into that. As these gentlemen were writing this down, the ancient scribes, how many of you, how many of you have studied how the scribes did what they did? You would have a priest that would stand before a group of scribes, and he would read letter by letter, word by word, the Old Testament, and it would be recorded. Now imagine, 5,800 copies, I think, that we have now. Is it possible there could be some errors? Is it possible there could be some admissions? I think so. Let's take a peek at the next slide. Let's say we had six manuscripts. We're looking at the first manuscript here. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Is it possible that manuscript has an error? It is possible. Let's look at manuscript number two. A long time ago in a galleon far, far away. That might have an error too. How about three? Let's load them all up, all six. Are there errors here? Yeah, there are errors. They're typographical errors. How many of you have heard about the number of errors that are in our texts? Thousands of errors they talk about in the biblical texts. Well, check this out. There are approximately 200 thousand errors in our Bible. 200,000 errors. But what do we mean by errors? 99.5 of those errors are due to grammar, spelling. Do you think we can get past that? Is it possible that when someone, a scribe is writing one down, so what do we do? The beautiful thing is we have so many copies, we just lay them next to each other. And we see a hundred copies spelled what you get. Oh, that's just a typo. We can, we can fix that. But critics of the New Testament will tout these numbers and they'll throw these numbers in your face. And you'll be like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Matter of fact, there's about 200,000 errors. But you have to ask them, what are those errors? Now, just a little bit different. Those are variations. So some people are going to ask, well, what about the rest of the errors? There are a little bit of differences in the manuscripts in the New Testament. If you want to write a couple of these down, um, the first one is Mark 16, 9 through 20. Most of your Bibles, it'll either omit them or it'll, it'll have them, but it'll have an asterisk next to it saying, you know, we're, some of the Old Testament text includes this, others don't. There's another one in John. John 7, 53, all the way to John 8, 13. And there's a third one, 1 John 5, 7. So anytime on your own time, take a peek at those. They're just random scriptures. They're, they're decent little fill-ins. Does it change the overall narrative of what we believe as Christians? Nah, not a bit. So there's your variation. There's your errors and omissions. Still feeling kind of good about your word? Yeah, pretty solid, right? So if we're wondering whether or not the New Testament is historically accurate, well, why do we even need to know that? What's so important about the New Testament being historically accurate? Because, beloved, number one, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Number two, Jesus Christ proved he was God. And if we're doing a logical argument, therefore, Jesus Christ is God. And whatever Jesus Christ says is true. And Jesus says the Old Testament scriptures are true. So how about that? We've got a Bible now, and we've just proven the Old and the New Testament are solid. It's extremely important. So they're going to attack this in different ways. So the first way is errors and omissions. Secondly is, is transmission and variation. The third is like, okay, okay, if you've proven that, we don't think Jesus really 
thought he was what you guys thought he was. You're fluffing this up a bit. Jesus was a great man. He was a sage, a good teacher, but Jesus really didn't believe he was God. Man, how do we deal with that? We deal with that through the scripture and the historical evidence that we already have. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no man comes to the Father but by me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus distinguished himself. Do you, who, how many remember the parable of the vineyard? Right? In the parable of the vineyard, you have a man that owns a vineyard, and he leases the, vineyards, the vineyard to his servants. Right? And he goes to a far country. When the wine time comes, what does he do? He sends one of his servants to go and collect a portion from the vineyard keepers, from the keepers. And what do they do? Yeah, they beat the guys, they stone them, they kick them out. He sends another one out, another one of his servants there to the, to the, the vineyard keepers. And they kill the guy. He finally says, you know what? I'm going to send my own son. They'll respect my son, the heir. They send a son, and those jokers, they said, this is the son, this is the heir, we're going to slay him, we're going to kill him. And he said, what is the owner going to do to those men when he gets back? What is Jesus talking about? Jesus has made some very clear delineations there, doesn't he? He says, number one, these, these, the Pharisees and the Sadducees he's speaking to, he knows for a fact that they're the ones that have been entrusted with the kingdom. He said, you, you are the ones we entrusted the kingdom to. And we've sent, he sent all of his servants. Who are the servants? The prophets. And what did you do to every one of these prophets? You beat them, you killed them, but finally he's sending his son. Jesus Christ believed he was three things. He believed he was, number one, the unique son of God. Number two, he was the Christos, the Messiah, the warrior king coming to bring justice and righteousness to the earth. And number three, he was his favorite title, the son of man. Now, who's the son of man? We have to go back to Daniel chapter seven, right? How many of you read the book of Daniel? My favorite books. Whoa, I love that book. The son of man, they see, Daniel sees God on his throne in heaven. And somehow there's a human being that's, be, that's rising to God's presence. And the angels greet him and they usher him into the very presence of God. And this son of man is given dominion and authority and honor over the earth. So believe me, when Jesus, when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, boy, the Sadducees especially, boy, they got miffed. They were ticked. Because they knew exactly who Jesus was referring himself to. He's saying, I'm the one that Daniel saw. I'm the one that's worthy of receiving glory and honor and praise. But unfortunately, the Jews at that time didn't even have a grid of reference for what the Messiah was supposed to look like. They're expecting the warrior king to come. In all the philosophies, especially the, especially the fourth philosophy, right? The zealots, those guys were, those guys were all about business. They didn't understand that the lamb was coming first and that the lion would come later on. Amen? So Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed he was. Third, did he prove it? I'm going to skip a few slides ahead. We look at five generally accepted facts. And when I say generally accepted facts, we're talking generally accepted by historians, Christians, and non-Christians as well. Fact number one. The crucifixion. Jesus Christ was crucified on a Roman cross. It's recorded by it's recorded by individuals who are hostile to Christianity. You learned last week about Josephus and others in their writings. That's generally accepted. It's a historical fact. It's, it's just not even arguable. The empty tomb. The tomb was empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, then why would the Pharisees and Sadducees have said they stole the body? <laughs> okay? It, the tomb was empty. All right? 
We just have to account for it. Three, the disciples believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Number four, critics believed, like James. And, and how can we account for the life of Saul turning to Paul? There's, there's, there's no way to account for these things. They, these are things that we know are true. So let's continue to three key issues that we have to deal with. Three key issues. Number one, you have to deal with the empty tomb, right? Number two, we have to deal with the postmortem. Once Jesus was dead, he rose. Amen. Happy Easter, everyone. All right, good Friday. Good Easter. He rose from the dead, and we have to deal with those postmortem appearances. And number three, the disciples' belief. And from there, there's six, six quick scriptures. If you want to take a snapshot of those on the death, the burial, the resurrection, the empty tomb. And now remember, what, are, what is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? What are those? The Gospels. But what are the Gospels? What I, I heard somebody say it. Good news, yes. And what? Eyewitness accounts. I don't talk about Bible stories. I'm trying to remove the word story from my speaking and my preaching because they're not stories. It's history. So begin, begin thinking of that and speaking it as such. Can we talk about stories? Stories could be true, could be false, could be a legend. This is history. These are historical documents. These are eyewitness accounts. Luke is very particular in noting the date, the time. Who is the king? Who is the ruler of this area? What was the... Why? He said to this, oh, excellent Theophilus, that you may know an accurate account of the things set before you. Beloved, this is our Bible. This is amazing. Other religions just don't, they can't even touch this. It's ridiculously solid. These are some scriptures. Now let's go over to, we're going to go over to six things, the six E's of the empty tomb. Frank Turek, anybody familiar with Frank Turek? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Yeah, he, he, he does these six E's, and they just work, man, because I think E for the empty tomb. These are six things. We see early testimony. We already talked about that, right? We've got, hist we've got eyewitness accounts, 300 of them, written in a very short time frame. Our, our data and our eyewitness accounts are earlier than anybody else's, period, and the number of copies. But we have eyewitness testimonies. We have eyewitness testimonies from Matthew and Mark and John. And then we have Luke coming on the scene. And Luke is interviewing all of these people together. And he's putting together a detailed account. What is the book? Um, who's the gentleman? The, uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, what is the movie? He gave his heart to the Lord. He was a, he worked for the Chicago Tribune. I'm, have a senior moment. Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel. Yes. Journalist. That's the word I'm looking for. Have a senior moment. Luke was a journalist. Okay. Not unlike Lee Strobel. Amen. Super solid. All right. We've got all these good things. I am going to, we're going to continue here. Embarrassing testimonies. Embarrassing testimonies. If you're going to make a legend if you're going to make something really cool about yourself, there's certain things that you're not going to include in the story, right? If you include the embarrassing things, usually the story is on point. If Simon Peter was writing about the story to make himself awesome and super cool, do you think you would have included get, me, get thee behind me, Satan? I, I, I may ask that part to be left out. How about denying him three times? Anybody that knows Jewish culture know the last thing they would want to do to prove their eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead would they have a couple of women go there and find him? Woman? The testimony of a woman during that time period? No, it didn't work. It didn't work. And all of these things prove and continue to show that he is in fact, that the New Testament is in fact true. Because all these things are included. How about E for excruciating testimony? Would the disciples be lying? Is that even, does that make any sense at all? Why do people lie? They lie for money. 
They lie for sex. They lie for power. Maybe to get out of punishment, they'll lie. But you don't lie to get all those things. That makes no sense that they were lying. You look at how they were stoned, how they were torn apart with animals, boiled in oil. You look at Fox Book of Martyr, you, you can see people giving their heart and soul and their lives for something that they know and believe is true. Nah, that doesn't make any sense that they were lying, right? Expected testimony deals with prophecy. There are certain Old Testament prophecies that we expected to happen, and they did. Christ fulfilled them. The book of Matthew is chock full of fulfilled prophecies. I, I kind of love how the chosen is doing it, you know? You got, this, you got this guy, Matthew, you know, he, he seems like he maybe could be on, on, on an autism spectrum, actually, you know? And, and you see a lot, of the, a lot of the folks that are maybe have Asperger's syndrome. I used to work with kids with autism, and some of these kids with Asperger's are brilliant. They are brilliant. But I love how they're doing that. And he's sitting here, and he's recording. He's learning the Torah, but he's also comparing it against what he's seeing happen in the life of Christ. You know, it's well done. Expected testimony, and then extra-biblical testimony. We looked at the writings of Josephus and Tacitus, who were talking about and confirming the actual names, the dates, the times of the high priest, the secondary priest, the events that took place. We don't have time to go into all those tonight, but they're there. They're there. And if you want those, shoot me a note. And I can send some of those to you because we don't have time to cover it all. Because it's, it's 8 o'clock, and I want to have a time that we can just pause and just ask some questions. So I want to go through the order of operations again. What was the first thing we have to establish? Objective truth. Does truth exist? How many of you were, um, were at the uh, Truth, Reality, or Reason conference with us? Yeah, I see a lot of you. Sean did an awesome job of talking about objective truth, didn't he? Objective truth are facts. Subjective truths are preferences or opinions. We have to determine certain things go in certain boxes. Amen? So we have to establish objective truth exists. What's the second thing we have to, we have to establish? Yeah, does God, does God exist? We have multiple arguments for doing that. And if God exists, then we know that miracles are possible, don't we? It comes with the package. The next thing we have to do is we have to get into the New Testament. We'll go ahead and stop there. I want, I want to put that, uh, the, the text in number for questions. Um, next, we have to establish the New Testament. Does the New Testament actually, is it accurate? Is it historically accurate? Because if it is, Jesus claimed to be God. And Jesus proved he was God. Therefore, Jesus is God. And if he's God, what he says go. What he says goes. Amen? Amen. So, I'm not sure if somebody's going to come up and help me with the Q&A. But I wanted to stop quick. I just want to give some time for just a, a burning question that may be, a, that may be on a heart or two. It can, be, it can deal directly with this or... It, it can be something different for apologetics, and I'll do my best. And if I can't answer it, I'll ask someone to take notes, and I'll get an answer. Because I got people close to me that, uh, that, can help, that can help with these answers. So text questions. Any questions specifically about what we covered tonight, first of all? Yeah, man. Yes. Sure did. Oh, uh, excellent. So that's a that's a really really good question. So those of you who didn't hear, he said, "Hey, the disciples believed a lot of stuff, right?" Some of the stuff they believed were right. Some of the things that they believed were wrong. This is, this is a different. We are talking specifically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Okay? There's no human being that, that's walked this earth, including me. All of my beliefs are not correct. Okay? So what is a belief? A belief is you take in data. You have a, you have a brain, right? A physical thing called a brain, squishy and gray matter. But you have a supernatural thing called a mind. Okay? And that supernatural thing, your mind, actually informs your brain. You're going to collect data just like a PC collects data. And then depending on your operating system, which is broken, it's got a disease, it's got a virus called sin, right? So the, the mind is a little bit, mind's a lot broken. You're going to assess that data. You're going to reason with that data. And then you are going to come forward with a belief, something that you believe to be a true. Now, is that belief just a belief or is it actually knowledge? Okay? Knowledge is a justifiable belief in something that's actually true. So our question, as it pertains to today, is did Jesus prove he was God by raising from the dead? And the disciples did, in fact, believe that that was the case. Does that make sense? Yeah, so exactly. Everybody's going to believe some stuff that's right, some stuff that's wrong, but knowledge is your ability to represent reality Okay, either in thought or in deed with a justifiable reason to do so. Yeah, I can chew on that for a little bit, but that's, that's what knowledge, that's what true knowledge is. Cool? Awesome. So we do have some questions that have been texted in. Please feel free to uh, text them there, and we'll see how many we can get through. We want to do a little lightning uh, Q&A. I mean, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens, right? <laughs> Okay, so the first one, kind of interesting. Uh, how, do, how do we know the apostles were not hallucinating the resurrection of Jesus? Oh, uh, yeah. That's, so we didn't get a chance to go through some of those, some of the counter hypothesis, right? So one of it is hallucination. So one thing about hallucination is that hallucinations happen to an individual. They don't happen to a group. Maybe they could happen to two people at the same time. Two people could have it. But Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. So it, it just doesn't scale. So that, that argument's been flat out crushed, even by secular psychologists. They go, yeah, that, that's not going to happen. Maybe a magic trick, if you could do some kind of a magic trick. But it certainly wouldn't be a hallucination. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, let's see. So this is a good one probably for people to write down. Uh, what are a few resources that you've used to learn apologetics? Oh, wow. All right. So I have a group of men that I do um, apologetics with. Um, I meet pretty much weekly with them. One of the first books that I would recommend reading is a book by um, a gentleman by the name of Greg Kokel. Are any of you familiar with Stand to Reason or hashtag STR Ask? So apologetics is a branch of theology, first of all. But it's the branch of theology that provides rational warrant, I'm not crazy, warrant for placing my trust in the things that the New Testament or that the Bible says is true. So the first thing you have to know is theology. So the book called Story of Reality, the story of reality, it's a very simple, super basic primer on theology. So you can't really do apologetics if you don't have a solid grasp of theology because that's what apologetics does. It defends it. So I would start with that book. Um, two books you could look at after that for introduction. One would be um, On Guard. On Guard, like On Guard, right? By Dr. William Lane Craig. Excellent book, a little bit more philosophical, but a super sound book in helping you establish the argument. These are the basic arguments that you're going to keep in your tool belt. All right, I'm Batman, I got a tool belt, all right? It comes with it. So I got all these tools to address different things, but that book is an excellent book that's going to assist you with that. Another book by Frank Turek called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Frank Turek studied under Norm Geisler. He, him and Josh McDowell, Sean's father, those two guys really were kind of like some of the fathers of modern apologetics, you know, here in the, in the U.S. Powerful, excellent book. And then after you have a decent understanding of apologetics, a must-read book is another book by Greg Kokel called Tactics. Tactics is, tactics revolutionize the way that I communicate and the way I share my faith. He teaches you how to share your faith and your convictions with those that, that may be violently opposed to you, 
or just maybe those that are seeking, but it teaches you how to ask the right questions that cause them to put truth on the table. I don't have to talk at them and try to preach at them and prove anything to them. I can ask questions that cause them to set truth on the table, and once they do that, it's very hard for them to take that back off. Okay? Excellent book. And if you have Right Now Media um, through your church, look up um, Tactics is on there. And I, I believe do. there's a couple other... Uh, it is a, it's a video. It's not the full book. I'd recommend you, you read the book, but also go through the videos. But they're super great. So those are, there's tons of pretty good apologetics resources available at Right Now as well. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Uh, this one is an apologetics question, but touches on a lot of other stuff. It's also a very spiritual question, I think. But how can you defend your faith to people who say that the morals of the Bible are outdated, especially when some seem exclusionary, such as God condoning indentured servitude in the Old Testament, marriage only between a man and a woman, not being able to date or marry, uh, non, or only being able to date or marry believers, etc. No, that's excellent. That's a great question. Oh, it's such a loaded question. There's a great book that I would recommend because I won't be able to do it justice by uh, Paul Copan, and the book is called "Is God a Moral Monster?" Is God a moral monster? He, Paul Copan, lives a. Uh, I think down near Boca, Boca Raton. He's at, um, I think it's uh, Florida Atlantic University. Awesome, brilliant guy. He spent a lot of time in this. One of the things that we as Christians need to understand is, is the law. Because people go, well, yeah, there's no killing. Okay, great. Do you eat shellfish? Yeah. Hypocritical Christian. What are they not understanding? They're not understanding the types of laws. Okay, there are three types of laws, Right? Number one, there's moral laws. Those are, any, those are laws that point out that we are violating the very character of God. Murdering, bearing false witness. Okay, there are things that violate the very character of God. Moral laws, they will always and forever be wrong. Okay? Second type of law, ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws. These are the laws that the Levites did in order to, we read about them in Leviticus. Why? Because we have this loving God who actually wants to have relationship with us. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. It starts out with Moses outside the tent. He can't even get into God's presence. So God says, I'm going to make a pathway for you. Why? Because God is holy. He is holy. That means he's beautiful, he's wonderful, but he's dangerous. And you can't just haphazardly stumble into his presence without this purification. Okay, so there are many laws that dealt with how do we become purified? How do I set this people apart? So a lot of those laws were there. The third type of law are civil laws, civil laws. They came out of Egypt and they were under Pharaoh's legal system. So when they came out of Egypt, there was no legal system anymore. So they lived in a theocracy where God said, okay, these are the laws we're going to use for you to just to relate with your neighbors. How high can you build your fence? What happens when someone trips over something or steals something? So they needed a legal system, but eventually they said, we don't want you as God anymore. Remember Samuel? And God says, hey, they didn't reject. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me here. You can have a king. And your king will now establish your law. And we have our own laws. Okay? We have to follow moral laws because those follow God's character. Okay, so that's where we can begin to distinguish between the types of laws and the things that people will come at you and say you're a hypocrite because you're not doing the rest of these things. But that book by Paul Copan is amazing. Awesome. Uh, this one I find very interesting. Uh, so I'll summarize. How do we know that the 66 books in the Bible are the correct ones? How do you, you know, know that the books of the Apocrypha shouldn't be part of the Bible um, how did the early church canonize those books? Yeah, and that, that's a very, very loaded question, but here's the short answer. The shorter answer is they looked for, number one, the individuals that had actually been with Jesus. Okay, these are the apostles. They looked for the, those who actually understood the Scripture, even, even Paul. Paul came face-to-face -face with Jesus, didn't he? 
I think it's a, one of the most beautiful stories is how he, his salvation, how it came to be. But these are the writing and these are the texts that they verified using the same methods that we talked about today. There's other gospels called the Gospel of Thomas, and there's, 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 other, there's other gospels, and they've all been proven to be fake or to be falsified, or they happen much, much farther down the line. So this, the body of scriptures that we have for, that make up our New Testament have been vigorously gone over. And the beautiful thing is that if we've done order of operations and we've established that God's God, miracles are possible. So this book that we have, these, these eyewitness accounts and these letters, we can have faith that they're historically accurate. There's a number of books. I, I have to look that one up. I don't remember the name off the top of my head. But how did we get the New Testament that we have today? And I can, I can forward that out as well. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, when you were talking about the six E's, you mentioned expected testimony. Can you elaborate on what you mean by expected testimony? Yeah. If you do a quick word search in the New Testament, right, on um, there's a term that Matthew always used, uh, there was a term that Matthew always used, and I can give you, I'm trying to see if I have a list of those. It might be in my slides. Let me go forward for the expected testimony. Uh, let's see. Empty tomb. I can get those to you. I don't have them on this short. I, I wasn't able to squeeze them in for the expected testimony. Um, embarrassing. I'm going to let my guy on the PowerPoint take a quick peek and see if there's a, if I include those. I don't think, I think I snipped those, but I will send those out. I've got a list, just a massive list of scriptures that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And I thought I had that screen ready, but I didn't, I didn't pack that one into this one. That's an excellent question. And we'll, uh, I can send that direct we'll to you. work with Joseph to compile a list of resources and um, some of the answers to these questions, and we'll put that on Discord as well. So Yeah, coming up on Christmas time, I mean, that, that's one of the best ones that you can see. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and give us his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Uh, the other one, the people who walk in darkness shall see a great light, a light that will shine on all who live in the land of the shadow of night. There's another one, Isaiah, um, a little Bethlehem. You're just a small Judean village, yet you'll be the birthplace of our king. Just, just scripture after scripture after scripture. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, the Christmas time, you hear just tons of them that Christ is coming in the Advent that is to come. But um, I can get you a more detailed list, but you know it's a long list. <laughs> but it's but it's super solid. Awesome. Uh, from your research, what version or versions of the Bible do you recommend? Wow. All right. I don't recommend a particular version of the Bible. I, because I grew up memorizing all verses in the New King James. It's just too hard for me to switch. <laughs> you know, I got so many things memorized there. Um, if I'm reading, I'm typically reading, um, if I'm just casually reading, a lot of times I'm reading with my kids, I, I look at the New Living Translation because um, it's, it's, it does a great job of, of, of kind of breaking it down in modern language with the kids. If I'm studying, I'm typically studying, I'm studying in Logos software, and what I look at is the um, exegetical layout. So when you read the scripture, it shows you each verse in English, and then below it, it shows it to you in whatever language. It could be in Hebrew, it could be in Greek or Aramaic, and then with the words, individual words highlighted. So like you said, it may say love here, but it may be eros, or it may be... It, it may be agape, right? When you study that way, especially if you're preparing to teach, you're going to learn amazing things because you're going to look at these, these, these words in Hebrew or in the Greek. You can click on them, and you can see other areas that they were mentioned. And it really takes you on these amazing trails, and you get a richer experience when you, when you see the, how the Word of God was transmitted as opposed to translated. So if I'm teaching... I, I literally almost always am looking in the Hebrew and the Greek. And once you get used to it, you'll start recognizing these words. You don't have to be a theologian, but you'll start recognizing certain words, and you'll start putting things together. And it's, 
it's incredibly fun um, to study and to pursue the heart of God um, by looking at some of that. But Logos software is one that I use. Um, Blue Letter Bible um, also gives you the ability to, to, to dive into some of that as well, and that's, that's a free online resource as well. Yep. Awesome. Uh, many of the books mentioned when comparing numbers of variations and manuscripts to prove how it can depend on the Bible uh, were philosophical texts. Are there? Do you have any comparisons for other texts that are more based off of accounts or uh, of historical events? So a lot of these writings that that I gave were yeah they were philosophers because a lot of times the people that were doing the recording were. Um, a lot of times the ancient Greeks, Romans. Um, Tacitus is one who is really probably one of the best publishers that was out there. And there's so much information that he's put out there that corroborates what we see in the, in the Scripture themselves. Um, the problem is, is during, the, during that time frame, everything is written on papyrus. The problem was it just dissolves and it goes away. So if you don't have a dedicated group of people who are constantly copying tediously the words, the scriptures, the letters, a lot of that just falls away. Um, fortunately, you know, we had a group of, of, of monks out in Qumran, right? The Essenes who were copying this stuff and left it in the form of Dead Sea Scrolls for us that, that ended up being preserved. So like you saw in the grass, there's just not much out there. But when we stack what we have against other historical documents, it just, ours just kind of blows them away. So, and, and even for looking at religious texts, you just can't find something like this in other religious texts. Nothing that comes close to what God's helped us preserve. Awesome. We'll do uh, one last one. Um, and I'll change the question a little bit, but we'll get the whole question. Would apologetics be a good tool for evangelizing? And if so, how do you use it when you're evangelizing? Wow, it's amazing. So it's, it's important to understand the purpose of apologetics. So apologetics has a three, I feel like I've got my back on these people over here. Apologetics has a threefold purpose. Number one, it's edifying yourself, edifying Christians, right? Because our faith is placing our trust in what we have good evidence and reasons to believe is true. ER, I always remember ER, I gotta go to the ER. Gotta get evidence and you gotta get reasons. Number two, it's to affect culture. Okay, we can use logic, we can use arguments, we can use reason. If, if, the, if God is God, then his logic and his reason is truth. Everything else is, is a false foundation, it's all, gonna fall. it's all gonna fall. So you can go forward boldly with humility, knowing that your worldview is absolutely sound. You can affect the arts, you can affect music, you can affect politics, you can explain things to people in a way that's irrefutable, okay? But you have to know the tools. That's what the apologetics helps you affect culture. And number three is evangelism. But I would dare say it's pre-evangelism. I say pre-evangelism because we can't even give someone the good news. We can't even drop the seeds in their heart until we've dealt with some of the rocks and glass bottles and things that are in their life. Many kids have no idea of who, who Jesus Christ is other than a, a, a cool way to curse, Okay, they don't they don't understand who God is or what he did, what he's done. So we have to go and we have to remove some of these boulders that people believe are true about Christianity. First Peter 315, it says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is within you. But do it with gentleness and respect. We're all called to be apologists. The evangelism side specifically, this is incredibly powerful. We live, in a, we live in an America right now where we have everything we need. We don't need God. We get sick, we go to the doctor. We get hungry, we go to Publix. If you don't have any Publix, you can, you can panhandle on the side of the road. Some of those guys make good money, right, and eat pretty well, right? We have no need of God. So when we come say, hey, we're coming to bring you the good news, they're like, I'm good. I don't need good news. I'm, life's great. They don't understand that there's a bad news. So our job as apologists is to show this is how reality works. This is why there's good and this is why there's evil. There is a God. And the whole world, the whole story of reality is about the sovereignty of God. He will rule. 
and he will reign. And we are children of wrath. We're broken, and we need this. Apologetics helps remove some of the boulders and allow that seed to fall. And the beautiful thing is, apologetics let you look at someone and and consider them in the order of operations. Do they believe in objective truth? Awesome. Okay, let's find out if they believe in God. Do they believe in God or some type of higher power? Boom. Awesome. Let's help them clarify what that is. So you know where someone's going to be, and then you begin to learn what questions do I need to ask that person to bring them into a deeper relationship with Christ. And those questions that you'll learn in the book Tactics, okay, don't go into tactics if you haven't read some apologetic stuff, because tactics is how to apply apologetics. But that book Tactics will revolutionize the way you do, the way you share your faith, because it keeps you in a place of safety. It keeps you in the driver's seat. It teaches you how to deal with the professor that you may be standing in front of. It says, all right, everybody that believes that abortion is good, raise your hand. Okay, you guys are Christians. Okay, you guys go sit over there. Matter of fact, you're a Christian. Why don't you come up here and tell us why you, why you believe in Christ? Okay, it's going to tell you how to deal with hostile engagements with gentleness and respect simply by asking questions. You'll keep yourself in a position of power, a position of strength. So apologetics, we are all called to be apologists. Okay, we, 1 Peter 3.15, we all have to be ready to give an example or give an answer to anyone. So that means you got you to put some time in the gym, all right? That means you got to learn some of these arguments. It's, it's not a big deal. Read on guard. Read on have enough faith to be an atheist. Meditate on some of the basic arguments. And when you get tactics, man, you will feel dangerous in a good way, okay? You'll be sitting in the coffee shop, and I'm going to the coffee shop. I'm sitting with my wife, and we're having a little date. And I hear a conversation over there, and I go, she's like, don't you do it. <laughs> this is our date night, you know? But you'll want to, you'll go sit next to someone, and you'll be like, hey, wait, what did you just say? Oh, man, I've been wrestling with that too. What do you mean when you say this? What do you mean when you say God? What am I doing? What do you mean by this? Help me understand. I want them to put all the pieces of their worldview on the table. And when I know what their worldview is, I can see the holes. And then I'm ready for question number two is, well, how do you get from here to here? Because these two things seem like they're in a conflict with each other. And that's usually where the wheels fall off the cart. But if you're asking genuine questions of individuals, but you have to have in your mind where you want to go, okay? You've triaged this individual. You kind of know where they're at by asking genuine questions. Then you play their answers back to them. They're like, is that what you think? I'm like, yeah, that's what I think. You're like, okay, cool. Now I have a question. (laughs) How do, you, how do you get from here to here? And you watch the wheels fall off. It's super fun. So you don't want, it's ridiculously fun, and you can, you can abuse people with this, okay? And I'm not, I'm, and that is exactly what you don't do. You can use it to lord over people. You can use it to abuse people. You can use it to win and crush arguments. But our job isn't, our job is to crush satanic arguments, but our job is to win the heart of other people, If you tick them off, the game's over. You've lost, okay? Be gentle, be respectful, but not at the expense of truth. Amen? Awesome. Can you guys give a round of applause for Joseph? Thank you, Joseph. Uh, We didn't quite get through all the questions. Uh, I'm not sure if you have a few minutes to stick around if people want to come up to you and ask questions. If you don't, you can sneak out the back, and I'll just, I don't know where they went. Um, But I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Like I said, we'll compile a list of some of the resources that Joseph mentioned, and some that he didn't mention, probably, um, on Discord. So be on the lookout for that. We'll probably have it next week up there. Um, Other than that, do want to just remind everyone, if you signed up for Day of Compassion, great. If you didn't, but you're interested and available at 8 a.m. Saturday morning, um, come help us paint hallways in Central Middle School. We'll have fun, hopefully not get uh, too covered in paint, but it's going to be a good time. Uh, And then next week here at the Harbor, we're taking a short pause on apologetics, and we're doing something called Word and Worship. Um, So next, yeah, it's going to be horrible. No, it's going to be great. yeah, so on Monday, Thursday, uh, the day before Good Friday, uh, the night of the uh, Last Supper, uh, we're going to be doing 
some worship and some scripture readings and communion, uh, and it's going to be a really special time as we just prepare our hearts for uh, for Easter. So uh, we love you guys, and I'll, I'll go ahead and close us out in prayer. Lord, thank you for, uh, for Joseph and for giving him just the heart for apologetics and um, to start overland apologetics. Lord, we just pray over him. Um, we, we ask that you would just bless him in that ministry and help him to uh, continue to equip people like us and, and other Christians who are interested or even don't know anything about apologetics, Lord. Um, just help him to, uh, to continue to be able to do that and uh, give him the tools and the wisdom and the resources to do that, Lord. And we do thank you just that he was able to um, take some time out of his day today and come share with us. And Lord, I pray that uh, the things that he spoke on, uh, the resources he's going to share, Lord, that they would have a lasting impact on uh, our faith, Lord, um, but also uh, in our lives as tools uh, to, to use to explain why we believe what we believe, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.